Okay, welcome to another interview with the Zero to ASIC course channel. And today I'm joined with Will, who you may know as Will Flux on Twitter. And did I get that right, Will? Yeah, it's, it's Will Flux. It yeah. seems like a nice name. Um, yeah, so could you uh, just give us a little bit of background about yourself? Okay, so, well, like, sort of professionally, I do sort of software technical architecture, DevOps, cloud, not really relevant to this kind of discussion. Uh, but uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine, Ben, uh, sort of uh, pointed me at FPGAs and said, you know, take a look at this. And I, and I got myself, it turned out a very ancient board that did have, you know, not great tools and everything. Uh, but I could almost see immediately these things were amazing. So uh, I was like, got to do more with this stuff. So um, I eventually got myself an RT board, which was a you know a, a decent board with modernish tools. Uh, the open source tools were a bit, uh, well, I didn't really know about them at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I started trying to get my FPGA boards to do stuff. Um, yeah, so I guess cool. that's, that's how I kind of got into the, the FPGA stuff, but I've always been into like graphics and computers demo scene. Started out on the Amiga as my first computer, really, the first computer I bought. Um, and some of that spirit I've sort of tried to capture in when I've been working on the FPGA. Yeah, so we were just talking about um, the kind of relevance, and I was saying that I saw uh, your tweet about your FPGA project on Twitter and had a look through your site, and I thought it looked like a, a really good resource. And then we were, we were discussing the possibility of doing this interview. And um, for me, the context is that on the zero to ASIC course, you get, we get some people with digital experience, but a lot of people with nothing. So then I, I like wrote a um, part two, section two of the course is all about digital design. And I'm using the icebreaker board from one bit squared as the kind of, if you can do it all with simulation, but if you want to do it with hardware, then that's the board I recommend. Um, and so, yeah, I was really interested to see your take. And I think that graphics projects are a nice way of um, learning FPGAs and they kind of showcase something that's a bit difficult to do if you're coming from, say, the Arduino or microcontroller world, world. It's quite difficult to get the timings you need. I mean, people have done it, but it's quite difficult to do something um, impressive or particularly real time. Um, so maybe you could tell us about the Project F AIM. Okay, yeah, so um, Project F kind of really sort of started about a year ago when I, uh, in fact, thanks to COVID, the work dried up a bit and I had a bit more time. And I'd already written a few blog posts about my FPGA experience. And um, after my initial enthusiasm you may have got in the introduction, I kind of hit, I think lots of people do this kind of uh, barrier that um, even quite simple things, it's really hard to find out how to do them because there were kind of no examples. Um, so, you know, you get your blinky working. That's what, you know, you get a blinky example, LEDs working. Now what next? And I bought books and I dug through forums and stuff, but it was really hard to, to do things that if you're doing stuff on Arduino or Raspberry Pi or whatever, there'd be loads of resources. There were basically no resources almost. Um, so basically Project F was, I, I'm trying to sort of uh, share my hard won learnings um, and build some enthusiasm for, FPGAs and because of my sort of background of interest in graphics and as you say graphics are hard very hard to do well on a microcontroller they seemed ideal um, and I'm very much also believing you know learning by doing and experimenting and things and so the graphics 
quite a nice, fun, interactive way to see see what you're doing and work with even the smallest boards like the like the icebreaker which i've been porting my designs to so yeah because i i mean for people that haven't tried video it can i don't know i went for with the first time i did it i thought this is going to be really difficult and then basically it's two timers so at least for vga um so it's actually not that difficult yeah I, i'd use the analogy with cpu design like when before you've heard about it you think it's incredibly complicated then you get some book and it's like oh here you can create a CPU in a few, you know, a, simulate it in software in a few hundred lines of code or in a, a small amount of Verilog, a really simple CPU. And similarly, very simple graphics are very simple. But obviously, as you get into more complex stuff, uh, you know, once people say, oh, what, build a GPU, you know, it's, it's, that's quite a big, quite a big uh, ask. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, graphics, the, ba the core stuff is really quite straightforward. Um, and so yeah it, it does seem like a great introduction a way to learn how to use fpjs practically so um i'm interested to know how you describe um what an fpga is for someone who doesn't who hasn't used one or doesn't know what they are how would you how would you describe it <laughs> yeah this is one of the most difficult questions i mean i talked to lots of my technical friends about this project when i kind of when it's kind of getting underway and i couldn't it's, it's really hard to convey what an FPGA is. I think my best answer is, I've just got it like a, a giant virtual breadboard. So if you're familiar with electronics, you know, you, you're used to having all your individual components and not gates and gates. It's like that, but on a huge sort of virtual scale, or maybe more uh, simply like Lego for electronics. So you can, or for digital design. So you can, you know, you've got, you've got your individual components, your, you know, your RAM and your, multipliers and your logic gates and things and the fpga lets you build those uh sort of really uh, quickly and simply compared to what you'd have to do if you were building you know it from scratch using individual components you can build at a much larger scale so um and i guess if you're if you want to get really enthusiastic then you say well you can do everything that apple and intel and tsmc can do a bit slower and uh, you know you've um Obviously, you need to learn design skills, but you can build a CPU, you can build a graphics card, you can build a crypto miner, a robot controller, all that stuff. There's, there's nothing your FPGA can't do that, you know, all, all the big boys can do at a bigger scale and faster, but you can do that too. So, um, yeah, if, if you ever felt to be Jay Miner or Steve Wozniak or whatever, I think this is, this is the kind of modern way to have you, have you go at do, building something new and innovative. Yeah, and um, uh, I like the Lego the Lego metaphor as well. Uh, I often use that one. And then um, now when I'm trying to explain ASICs to people who use FPGAs, I'm like, okay, well, imagine you've got this like single block of Lego that we were using in an FPGA that's like a lookup table or a, a flip-flop. And then you zoom into that and you realize that one Lego brick is made out of a hundred other tinier, <laughs> tinier bricks. And that's like what... And building stuff with an ASIC is you've got that finer layerful of detail. So in an FPGA, you use a, you use a lookup table to model an AND gate, and maybe you're, you're wasting resources because you have to build a big one out of lots, and then you can't use some of it, or you only need an inverter and you waste the whole uh, lookup table on one function. But then in an ASIC, you have like 150 smaller tinier lego blocks and one of them is just a single inverter and the other one is like an eight bit eight input and gate so you then you'll get um uh 
finer grain access to the raw materials and so you get more efficiency and your shapes that you're building out of lego are smoother um but yeah the, the major downside is the six month lead time and <laughs> if you get it wrong then you can't fix it afterwards so mm. fpga is the win um so uh, we've already like touched on this um but what's your um what's your kind of sense about the a good way of teaching FPGAs. Okay, well, yeah, well, I'm definitely, as I mentioned, for, for the hands-on doing practical stuff. I think most of us, when we learned software programming, lots of people did that, you know, at you know school, teenagers or whatever, you know, you didn't learn about uh, CPU pipelines or, you know, speculative execution or any of those kind of things. You, you built a program to, you know, uh, draw graphics on the screen, make your own little game, do a word quiz or whatever. You did practical hands-on stuff and the kind of theory you pick up as you went along. And I very much believe that's the right way to learn FPJ too. Um, there is most, because most of the material online you find is for, aimed at sort of academic audience for, you know, uh, sort of later years of undergraduates or graduate students. Uh, it tends to be very theoretical and quite dry. Whereas I think the way people get into electronics, Arduino, open source, whatever, is by doing practical things and by learning, by seeing and doing. Uh, and so I, that's why I'm really keen on projects like doing stuff with graphics. Uh, and there's some good example, a few good examples with FPGA for fun, which is another site I'd recommend. We talk about, you know, audio, doing stuff with uh, PCI Express, even they've got lots of practical things. So I think you pick up the theory as you do that. Um, Otherwise, I think it's way too off-putting. If, if your first lesson is, here's a blinky LED, now let us explain the difference between a more and a Mealy, you know, finite state machine. You're like, what? You know, that, that's too abstract. You want to learn practically, is my view. Um, but, you know, different people learn in different ways. This is my take, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on the, on the practical side of things. When I um, think back about, um, how, like, the stuff that I remember from previous years or like even kind of uh, formal training, like going to university to study this kind of stuff. The things that I remember most clearly are the things where I actually had to build something or solve a problem where I was fully kind of involved and that, that hands-on somehow works really well for me. Um, I was looking over a blog post I wrote a while ago about my process when I started on FPGAs kind of three or four years ago. And um, I've got, uh, I'll just uh, tick these off. So I said, um, find a mentor, find a, find a community, find the tools. Because at, at that point, I was just transitioning from like um, the huge kind of multi-gigabyte downloads to the, the, the open source tools, which worked much better for me because I'm like a command line, make file, Vim kind of person. So I much preferred those. Um, find how other people do it, like look at how other people set things up, start a project. So I did like a video, um, I'd previously done a, an interactive kind of virtual graffiti style project where you use a, a, a spray can, um, and, um, it, uh, uses an infrared camera to track where that is and put it on the VGA screen. But that always took kind of a hundred milliseconds latency with a computer in the loop. So I decided I'm going to do this as an FPGA to try and get that latency down. And I, yeah, I didn't, I thought that was going to be, I thought that was going to be a short project, but it took over a year to complete that. 
um, and then do- document and pre- document and present the project. So then I took it to a maker fair and showed that off. Um, study other people's work. So I looked at how um, Luke Valenti's USB bootloader works for the tiny FPGA because um, that was and that was like seeing the way he did that and his test benches was really eye opening for me. And then start teaching. So I started a, a group at the local Valencia hackerspace um, to to start kind of teaching this stuff and stay like one or two steps ahead of the, the people on the course. So it seems to me like with Project F, you've kind of, well, you, you've got like the, you're doing the split between the RT and the icebreaker, aren't you? So you've kind of, you've got the tools there. Um, um, yeah, well, you, those are two boards that seem popular and I've chosen to support them. But first I tried adding more boards, but uh, especially as my design, I mean, initially I thought my blog post, I'd just write a blog post, move on to the next one. But I keep returning and improving and working on the designs and explanations as I've been learning myself. And I found if I tried to support too many combinations, just the testing became, uh, <laughs> it would take me a day just to test with all the combinations of stuff. So um, I, I want to support the open source tools and the um, icebreaker boards, uh, but I also know quite the, the RT board and Xilinx is quite popular as well. And though there is improving uh, the tools for open source and Xilinx are, are getting there. Um, so, I, I thought it was good to support both, and it also helps me avoid falling into the trap of using, you know, vendor-specific stuff. Um, my designs pretty much work uh, well on both, though I have uh, had to tweak things, um, you know, wh- when I was porting to the icebreaker. Uh, I guess tying in with what you were saying about learning uh, or teaching, I think t- teaching yourself uh, or uh, trying to teach others is a great way to learn too. I mean, I've, I've learned so much by you know, posting my ideas and designs and then getting feedback from people. Uh, and I think finding the one bit square Discord channel, which I did about a year ago when I got my icebreaker, that's made a huge difference. Um, yeah, so that's the kind so, of feeds back into this like community idea. Or, yeah, also, and then finding people on there who really know what they're talking about, that's really helpful. Yeah, and, and the prepare, you know, there are people on there who, you know, whose knowledge is so far above mine, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of in different worlds when it comes to digital design, but they've been great in in helping me, uh, and I try and help the community obviously by publishing examples and uh, making this stuff accessible. Because uh, often people are like, well, here's an example. You point you at a Git repository, and you know, here's 50 Verilog files and a you know a token readme, and you're like, well, how do I even start? Where do I begin? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I do. I'd encourage other people if you're learning to, you know, blog and write about it. Uh, people will really appreciate it. Even things you think are basic, like uh, read memh, the you know the Verilog uh, lo- loads stuff into memory, has been the most popular post on my blog since I did it. Even though you think it's a really simple, trivial thing, but uh, it seems so many people are searching for how to use this seemingly simple thing. Um, so yeah, re- yeah, I'd really encourage people to put. Their, their learning and uh, ideas out there that there is not that much on the internet for FPGAs for yeah, and, a lot, and, and a lot of it is um, pretty old or it's um, only going to work with like some specific vendor tools so whenever I search for readmemh I always get onto this same like super old school web page that doesn't really help me with what I'm trying to do yeah but I still struggle with that kind of stuff um, especially mm. um when I want to read a file from a different directory, it's like every tool kind of needs the 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 the, the, 
the text file that it's reading in in a different directory and you have to i end up having to have symlinks everywhere so it always works yeah it was those kind of problems i couldn't get the vado i had my file in my project whatever but it turned out it just gave this error there were no internet matches for it and so i put that in my post i think that's partly why i get lots of traffic for just that post because it turns out once you know uh how to do it it's really straightforward and i think this is a really important thing for people to know when they're coming to fpgas they'll be told you know hardware design's hard you need a different mental you know approach and it's nothing like software and whatever and that is true but lots of the stuff just comes down to digging out the right information which unfortunately is harder than you know i'd like and i think most people would like but uh having the community certainly yeah say the uh getting to know some of the people on one bit yeah. Uh, I would yeah, definitely really echo helped. that as a, a great community. I think Esden does a great job of cultivating that community. And um, in particular, I'd like to give a shout out to TNT on that forum because he's so helpful and he's, like you say, his hardware skills are at such a high level. And then he shares on his streams in his YouTube channel um, and gives like great insight for um, for people like me who want to kind of learn the, the next step or what else can you do and he's always kind of managing to squeeze impossible stuff into an FPGA and kind of, yeah. I think it, it was really um, a live stream of his that properly helped me to understand about how you design f to meet specific timing closure on an FPGA and what, like what's going to be your critical path and how to think about digital design to make sure those critical paths are, are going to be short or quick. Mm. Yeah, so big up TNT. Yeah, TNT and Gatecat have helped, both helped me enormously, um, in, especially in, with using NextPNR and Yosis uh, to, to get the best out of my, my designs and things. Yeah. Um, I got a little thing on my to-do list here, um, which is maybe falls into one of the things that uh, he didn't understand what I was uh, going to talk about. But I wanted to say on one of my um, graphics projects, I did a, um, in fact, I might just go and get it. I even, uh, I hope this works. I, ch I charged it up uh, for the. Oh, charged it. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a live demo. Oh God, the live demo, it never works, does it? I charged it up last week when I thought we were having our interview last week and then I was wrong by a week. And in that week, it's now discharged itself. <laughs> no. Yeah, so well, I can made you charge this... it up while we talk about other things. Oh, what's it? oh it's a, uh, is it a badge? From... Yeah, so it's an icebreaker with a, a microphone PMOD um, and then a, uh, a screen here. So then if I, ah. um, if I whistle into it, like, then you can see it does like an, an FFT and plots oh, that as a waterfall. And I was finding with um, uh, with every every time I would change the code, uh, the, the HDL, the Verilog, and then you and then synthesize it and use an XPNR to um, to put it on the FPGA, the colours would be different. Um, okay. And uh, everything seemed to be fine on the simulation, and I eventually traced it back to needing to register the outputs so because you get the logic gets laid out wherever and then when you take like the video output and on the the lcd clock it's looking at what's what the color is but 
the, those um, those colors are coming from different parts of logic or different lookup tables, and they arrive at a slightly different time from all over the design. And then the colors are different. And then you do a different layout or use a, a different seed with next PNR, and then the colors change. Um, but then when I registered the outputs so that like right at the edge of the FPGA, they're all coming in on uh, getting updated on one clock, that totally solved it. But that was a one of these horrible simulation versus synthesis um, bugs. And I was wondering, is that something that you've seen in graphic stuff? And like, um, are there any other uh, sim synth kind of pitfalls that you've run into that uh, you've got any advice on how to uh, resolve? Well, yeah, I, I had uh, a different if similar experience when I came to Icebreak. So on uh, when I was doing HDMI out, I output on uh, my Xilinx board, because the way you had to do all the encoding and stuff, you, you were automatically registering the output with it next to the IO pins. When I came to Icebreaker, I had all sorts of weird ghosting problems in fact my image. My colors were right, but my images were sort of ghosting. Uh, and that's in fact where I learned about the SBIO primitive on on Icebreaker. Uh, and in fact, TNT, who you mentioned earlier, is the one who was like, "Ah, you're not you're not doing this explicitly." And I uh, and Next PNR doesn't say, "Oh, well, this looks like an output. We'll put it in this register. You need to do it explicitly." So, um, yeah, that that was really useful. And I updated my blog post to show you know that and the trick of using DDR and things to to get the, the the best output, but I think uh, there is no like simulation is never going to do everything you need it to do. Uh, even if you use like uh, say Verilator and SDL, which we might talk about in a bit, um, just those things like registering outputs or dealing with um, timing skew and stuff, it just never seems to be quite the same in simulation. Um, and if you get frustrating bugs, I often found if you just just adding a, a set of flip-flops, just adding a set of registers, often just fix the <laughs> which isn't ter terribly scientific, but things that work in simulation, you've got, it turns out you've just created this big lot of, you know, mm -hmm. combinational logic. And in simulation that works perfectly. And then you're like, hang on, on the hardware, it's just timing is all over the place. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and so the icebreaker exposes more of, that when you actually run it. Yeah, so. the tools maybe um, hold your hand a bit less. Um, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine called Diego, who's a real um, expert in this kind of stuff. And he was saying how there's all these kind of rules of thumb that uh, you should use. So all in every time you make a module, um, you should register the outputs so that things all change at the same clock. And if you get used to kind of getting into the habit of doing things along these design guidelines, then you're more likely to end up with um, the same thing working on an FPGA as it works in the simulation. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd agree with certainly with the registering outputs. I think there's, a, I've, I think I've only got one module where I've explicitly decided not to, and I've documented, it, and it's because it's registered immediately in the following in the logic it links to but um yeah a lot of these rules of thumb are, are definitely worth uh <laughs> worth learning adopting from. yeah uh, um, and registers are cheap i think everyone's kind of scared of spending registers on uh stuff that you know even the icebreaker has thousands and thousands of registers so one for every lookup uh, table a, sorry one for every lookup table yeah so don't be afraid i think people are overly afraid of using 
uh, registers in in their designs. Yeah. I, I know where I, in the past I've been um, maybe not generous enough with them, and I've certainly improved performance by adding them. Um, yeah, yeah. Break up those combinatorial pathways with another level of registers. Uh, yeah, and especially like I mentioned the icebreaker before, I think it's not just uh, the difference in tools, say with some of the commercial products, but also because the FPGA is uh, simpler. So I'd say some things that you can get away with on the, uh, say, faster FPGAs show up more. So again, TNT, we keep mentioning him, but it was like, oh, you do realize on the icebreaker that subtraction, just using subtraction, uses a whole other layer of logic. That's why this is performing poorly. And I was like, oh, I haven't even considered that. But uh, because it needs to do the invert and then the, the kind of maths. Um, which hadn't which hadn't been a problem on the sort of larger FPGAs I've been using. So um, it, it improved the performance on the larger FPGAs too, but it was much more critical uh, to get it right. So that is one of the challenges I'd say with video, say on the icebreaker, is that you're more often pushing against the limits of what the board can do, which is great experience, it's gonna be great fun, uh, but you do need to be really mindful of timing more so than on a board with, uh, you know, uh, I guess, faster logic. So, Will, what would be your um, suggestion as a good uh, My First Video project? Okay, well, um, I guess it kind of divides into two things you're, you need to consider. Your dry, how to drive the display you're going to use and how you're actually going to draw the graphic. So, driving the display depends on, you know, what display you choose to use is it a VGA monitor or you know a television or whatever or even an LCD panel directly so but for a first project I'd suggest either using VGA because it's really straightforward or using uh, an output that does the encoding for you so if you use the DVI-P mod uh, that works well with the icebreaker board um, then it does all the encoding of DVI for you so it is that's really straightforward and it has the advantage of working with televisions and monitors that people have um, uh, so yes, and I'd stick to, don't be too ambitious with the resolution at first, like VGA 640 by 480 is, is a good fit, I'd say, for the icebreaker without too much, you know, uh, push, pushing the limits initially. You can, people do do use stuff at HD. Um, and then there's like how you actually, uh, draw the graphic. So broadly speaking, you can race the beam in a, like a, you know, in the days of Atari and, where you draw the pixels um, like as as the sort of virtual beam passes on the screen, and this this is really high performance. It works well with sprites and simple designs, but it does mean timing is a real issue. So you know everything you draw has to be exactly uh, at the right time, but it works even on the tiniest FPGAs and sprites, which are really easy to do. I've got uh, there are plenty of examples of those um, in Project F and on other sites. Uh, make for really good interactive graphics games or whatever. If you want to do something more complicated, then you really need the frame buffer, uh, uh, which is relatively straightforward, but you do need the memory for it. So I think one of the biggest challenges with graphics projects, I don't know, your first example, your first project you used, what you used for memory to- Yeah, I ended up using, an ex I used the black ice board that has an external SRAM and I used that for the frame buffer. And I think I needed a frame buffer because I was doing persistent lines. Where as you drew with the can, it would those lines would stay on the screen, and it um, you could only have like a five or six lines 
calculated with Bresenham's line algorithm before you ran out of timing. So you had to like store the results of those lines somewhere. So mm. I ended up going to frame buffer. Yeah, so frame buffer, I'd say is, uh, it, unless your project is sort of game or sprite oriented, or you can't, <laughs> or you really want to push the, uh, the sort of metal, then I'd go with a frame buffer if you've got the RAM. Um, and you can use like the, the pseudo SRAM on the icebreaker. You can have a, you know, like a 320 by 240 frame buffer and room for other things. Yeah, so that's um, one of the nice things about the up 5K chip that's on the icebreaker actually is because it has that huge memory compared to the other chips in the same series. It's got- Yeah, one megabit. Yeah, of, so you can use um, that for a frame buffer. Yeah, yeah if you, so you could use say half for a frame buffer or a half for a double frame buffer, and then that still leaves memory you could use with a say a Pico RV32, you know, Risk Five Core or whatever. So yes, that is a good option if say 320 by 180 or 240 works for you. Um, and a frame buffer does give you so much more flexibility, um, as you said. Like if you're drawing lines, drawing diagrams, visualizing or processing video, whatever. Uh, it's just a shame more boards don't have more generous, easy to use memory because DRAM is really hard to use. So I assume similarly with a the, if people are doing ASIC projects, then you are unlikely to have significant memory on your ASIC. You're going to have to depend on external uh, memory. So you kind of need to look at what mode you, you know, display room resolution and bandwidth you need and how you're going to drive it. But you probably don't want to have to build a DRAM controller into your ASIC or else, you know, that that's going to make your yeah, life hard. No, but, SRAM is uh, much easier. And I, I've made this point before. I'd really like to see more boards include, you know, a four megabit SRAM, or whatever. They're only a couple of dollars, and or even so just a footprint. Easy. You know, you can add them. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for graphics, uh, a frame buffer really does make exploring and doing interesting things easier. And also dealing with timing, you talked about the challenge with drawing lines. Well, of course, the frame buffer. If you use um, like BRAM. If you've got dual port BRAM, which even the icebreaker can manage, you know, you can write at one clock and read at another clock, then you can draw at a different frequency from, you know, your your display is operating. So that's really helpful if you're struggling to meet timing. If you're doing something complex, some complex graphics that will work at 12 megahertz, but your display needs 25 megahertz, well, that's fine if you use a frame buffer and use that approach. Um, so yeah, frame, frame buffers are great. Just yeah, if, if you're expecting to get, you know, 1920, 1080p HD, then uh, you're going to need a lot of memory and a lot, a lot of boards to, to do that. So, uh, yeah, I think um, so much there. Yeah, because I saw on your the ASIC project you talked about recently, the challenge of the amount of memory and handling, you know, sort of sprites and things. So. Yeah, I think there's... Um... Uh, two or three of the group submissions coming in for MPW2 are uh, frame bufferless video displays, kind of uh, retro gaming inspired, racing the beam. And for that very reason, with just a very small amount of memory internally to uh, record where sprites are or what the sprite tiles are. Um, but then everything is rendered on the fly at the speed you need. Yeah. Um. Um, so, um, I wanted to ask you what your preferred method is for doing simulation and testing, because one of the problems that I've had, um, like, so just going back to 
you felt like earlier you said you don't it's annoying to support more boards and one reason is because then it takes too long to do the testing um so wouldn't it be cool if you could um kind of have like all your test benches and then just run them in a continuous integration environment or something like that um but my experience is that often it can take hours to render a single frame to then say generate a png and then diff that against your golden reference output or whatever so uh, do you have any hints or tips for i mean the, the the fun thing is yeah you just bang it on an fpga and look at what comes on the video screen that's kind of one of the reasons why th th this makes a nice a nice project but if you do want to do um simulation with video projects what would you how would you go about doing it Okay, well, yeah, it is really tempting. I, I'm sure we've all done it. We just plug in the FPGA and occasionally it works on the screen first time. And a lot of the time you'll get a totally garbled screen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you need a, like a multi-pronged attack to, to test and simulate your uh, video projects. Um, so what, like, because I, the first tool I used seriously was Vivado, I've tended to do my initial behavioral simulation in that um just because that was what i sort of started off doing uh, and so i i my designs i tend to break them down into a smaller modules as is reasonable and then test those individually because uh, it's really easy to write a test bench for a, you know a, a a simple module even say drawing a line or whatever um but as you said i mean behavioral simulation only gets you so far uh, especially with things like graphics and video it's really hard to see if the video signal will actually work on a television or a, a monitor. So uh, I've been making increasing use of Verilator and SDL combined. So um, Verilator is so much faster than lots of the, the behavioral simulation tools that it is actually practical to do video stuff on it. Um, so I'm still working to up the performance a bit, but for some of the examples in FPGA graphics, I'm getting around one frame a second or three frames a second, which is actually usable compared to, you know, as you said, like waiting. I've certainly done stuff in the past where I'm like, oh, it's not working. Oh, it, oh no, it's drawn one pixel, drawn another pixel. And that's just far too slow um, to, to be useful. So I think with the graphics, there is that huge jump from here's something I can look in a waveform to here's a million pixels being changed by something and just the volume of data makes sort of simple behavioral stuff harder to do. You can do it for the like building blocks, but ultimately you want to see, does it work on a TV or monitor? And I think uh, Verilator and FDL is the best thing I've found so far. So um, uh, just say that. I didn't, I'm not quite hearing the acronym you're saying, F FDL? Sorry, FDL, the simple F uh, direct, hang on, this might be something. <laughs> have to check the, what the acronym, but it's a, uh, what's it called? Uh, so F, it's, Sierra Delta Lima. Okay. It's SDL. a well-known. Uh, where is it? Hang on. Uh, yes, yeah, simple direct media layer. So SDL is a, a, a cross-platform library. It's a very thin layer on top of whatever OS you're using, which means you can, in a like a hundred lines of C plus plus or whatever get an image and draw on a screen. So what you can do, because Verilator, maybe I should explain this properly then. So Verilator can take your Verilog and turn it into C++. Uh, so for the graphics thing, say, With limitations. 
Sorry? With some limitations. With yeah, but I try and do as little as possible yeah, yeah, in C++. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so you, you get an interface you can use in C++, and then SDL provides a simple interface to do graphics things. Like you can say, well, here's an array of color values, draw them in this window. And you only need like, you know, 10, 20 lines of C++ to do that. So by combining them together... So it's a bit like can, a very simple um, QT or Cairo or something like that. that it, allows you. Yeah, it's less about UI and more just like, I mean, it does do audio and game controllers and stuff. It's been used for lots of games, but it does give you basically a canvas you can draw on very simply. Um, sorry to interrupt you there. So, and it's also cross-platform, so you can run it on Windows and Linux and Mac OS or whatever. Uh, so uh, I, I plan to write a post about this because I think it is really a really useful approach. Um, and even if you don't really know C++ or whatever, you can just cut and paste the example, but it does give you that quick visualization uh, of you know what's going on, and you can save the things to PNGs or whatever if you compare it. So I'd be really interested if other people have ideas on um, testing graphical projects, but I think Ver Verilator and SDL uh, is the fastest thing I, I like yeah. I've found so far. But I wouldn't I would emphasize do the behavioral tests, break, break your design down, and do the tests of individual things. Um, like if you're using the Bressing in line algorithm, for example, I verified that um, behaviorally first before I even tried drawing on a with its own you know, distinct screen. test bench. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, it, it's not formally verified or anything, um, but it is, you know, I, I tried to think of all the edge cases and things we found some more. Um, like formal verification is something I'd like to learn more about, but um, it's just one of those things that's kind of still been on the on the backlog, but I haven't got to, and it's quite hard to do for some of these more complex uh, things. Yeah. Even proving like multiplication or division is quite hard. So, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, yeah. Let's not go on. Let's not uh, stray too far off the path here. But um, uh, yeah, I think one of the things I think is misunderstood about formal is that um, it's uh, very difficult to get a return on investment and i think you can get you can cover some bases really quickly and easily to just kind of give yourself some security that this thing will never happen or like the state machine can never get into this state or and that just if you're finding yourself trying to work out like what would happen with these combination of signals is it ever possible for this to happen and you, you can just write a single assertion saying this will never happen and then run that through the tools and find out whether it can or not um, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to do more. It's it's definitely something I'd like to do more of. I haven't been put off by my little experience of it. It's just that, you know, there are so, there's so many things to do uh, yeah. and, and test that. Well, when you quick. get round to it, ask me for an evaluation license. Yosis HQ. <laughs> ah, you see, well, one of the things that's been, I found slightly confusing, maybe again, this is off topic for this video, is understanding how these, the various tools in this area fit together and what how the commercial and open source ones relate to each other. So. We've got a new page on the Yosis HQ website that explains that. Anyway, ah, back back brilliant. onto back onto the topic. I wanted to just share my um, my tip for um, for debugging graphic stuff. So I, um, I I also have used Verilator. I don't. I'm not really a C plus plus person. I got a nice pull request from Daya Datsp on my VGA clock that lets me run the clock in 
real time and adjust the hours and the minutes uh, with buttons and save PNGs, which is great. But what I also like to do is um, make the VGA output and the rest of the design as parametric as possible. So I may be targeting 640 by 480, but I can squeeze it down to like 40 by 20. And then I can render a frame in much, much less time. And then I can check that frame against what I'm expecting. So um, yeah, Verilator and parametric stuff. Um, okay, so moving on, uh, one of the other things I liked about Project F w when I was browsing through it was uh, you've got some nice pages on algorithms or shortcuts or like how to achieve a, a specific thing. And I was wondering if you could just um, tell us what your favorite, um, your, what your favorite post has been so far about uh, one of these algorithms or shortcuts. So algorithms, you mean like division or? What? Yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah. one actually because um, I was I was when I first started doing HDL stuff like really at the beginning and I needed to do a division, I just put like a divide sign in there. And then suddenly my design went from kind of passing timing with a hundred lookup tables to failing timing with 5,000 lookup tables. And I was like, what is going on here? Because I didn't realize that the tools were going to synthesize me a single cycle divide. <laughs> and often, um, so a, a great tip here, just before um, I let you jump in, is that I got shown by Claire Wolf. is uh, you can take your divide, put it in C, compile it, disassemble it to see what the instructions are. And GCC is really great. Well, all compilers are great at optimization. So then you may find that if you do like left shift by two, subtract some number and then right shift, then you get the integer argument that you want. And then that's much, much quicker to get out with an FPGA. Um, so yeah, just handing it back over to you. Uh, maybe okay. you can talk about one of your favorite um, optimizations or uh, algorithms that you use in FPGAs. Okay, well, I, I'd, I'd like to talk about division because um, my approach is really simple, but I think is it is like very illustrative of many hardware points or hardware design challenges and trade-offs is division. So. Uh, like you, when I first came to do division, I was like, oh, well, right, we can do multiplication, but division, in fact, in the tools I was using, wasn't synthesizable. And so I obviously looked on the net and there were people saying, well, you fools, we shouldn't expect division to be synthesizable. But they didn't really provide any answers to like why or um, how you should go about it. Because I mean, multiplication is pretty complex as well, but seemingly my FPGA could do that. Um, and the modules and stuff available weren't great. So in the end, I was like, well, how does division work? I went back to like school, as it were, uh, reminded myself how long division works. And I was like, well, if I can do long division, surely it can be done in binary and it turned out to be straightforward. So basically I designed from scratch an algorithm that turned out to be the non-restoring, uh, I had to look that up there, division uh, algorithm. And it's really straightforward. It only does one bit per cycle. So a 32-bit divide takes 32 cycles, but it's incredibly simple. It, I mean, it, the most complex operation it does is a subtract. Uh, so it doesn't use any complex multipliers or DSPs or whatever. Um, and at first I was kind of a bit, you know, unimpressed or disappointed with this. I wanted, you know, faster, you say single cycle division or whatever. Uh, so I did some research uh, and there's all these academic papers about doing fast divide, but it's it's really hard. And it uses multipliers and lookup tables 
and it's incredibly complex. And so, because obviously on an FPGA, I'm not stuck with just having one divider. In fact, for the graphics stuff and things I've done, I've just, um, you know, I can create 32 dividers. And then on average, I'm getting, you know, one, I'm getting, you know, I'm, the latency is still 32 cycles, but I'm getting, you know, 32 results every cycle. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, I think I think the natural inclination is to want to do things as in as few cycles as possible. But because you can do so much in parallel, you shouldn't feel um, restricted to that. So, um, and and as you you talked about using GCC as an example to get a sense of uh, like how complex something is, I, I'd say another example is to look at what commercial hardware, if there are figures for it. And so uh, I looked up my Skylake you know, my Intel Skylake CPU, quad core, a few years old or whatever. And how long does 64-bit integer division take? Well, it takes 42 to 95 cycles. So my trivial algorithm runs a lot slower than a four gigahertz Pentium, not Pentium, you know, whatever, uh, Skylake um, core i7 or whatever it is. Uh, but I'm still getting one cycle. So I, I think there is a tendency for people to feel they've got to do stuff in as few cycles as possible. And keeping each cycle really simple, you get good clock speed, and it's much easier to debug. So um, there are, it feels like there are bigger trade-offs in complexity on hardware than there are in software. Um, a more complicated algorithm in software, if it takes a bit more memory or whatever, you don't suffer that much of a penalty for that. But if your division logic is 10 times larger, that can be a big penalty on an FPGA or an ASIC. So, yeah, and it may be um, for nothing. So if you're like... Hmm. If your target is a handheld computer game and you want fast latency, say it's got to be like a hundredth of a second, which is going to be impossible to to feel. But in terms of if your thing is running at 10 megahertz and you've got to update a multiplier every hundredth of a second, then you've got tens of thousands of cycles to do that. And as you say, with an FPGA, if you need to do more than one thing at once, you just duplicate that simple division hardware and do stuff in parallel. And I, I really think that that's a key thing about making that next step um, beyond kind of the blinky Hello World FPGA stuff is thinking about how quickly do I really need the result and how many clock cycles is that and how can I pipeline stuff so that um, I get my result in time but using the shortest smallest simplest possible units that are easy to test synthesize well and have very low latency and yes the simpler the design it is much easier to test and verify when you mentioned division i obviously thought of the pentium fdiv bug uh, which i also looked up when i was learning about division and that was due to a mis they used a lookup table uh, to speed part of the division. And when the chip was made, four values, I think it is in the table, were accidentally set to zero rather than like minus two or something. And that's what caused that bug. So if, if that can happen to Intel with their, I'm sure, very rigorous testing, if you build a very complicated divider, like how are you going to test it? So I'd say starting simple that you can verify. If you do need to make it faster, you can you know, work on the optimization. But I'd really push back against people trying to do really complex clever designs right from the get-go um, for something like Division. So, yeah. Um, and simple, simple stuff is... Go on, sorry. 
no, it, it was pleasing to see that just taking pen and paper, as it were, and saying, how do we do the vision? Uh, this is, you know, th this is how you do it can, you know, work, work wonders for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point, actually, pen and paper is, um, I have this bad habit when I'm programming to just think, oh, I can just work this out as I do it. And then I always tie myself up in knots because I've not properly thought about what I actually have to do. But I quickly learned with FPGA stuff, there's no way I'm going to be able to solve this on the fly. And I really need to break it down into these small blocks. And then by using pen and paper and looking at it and looking at these little blocks, um, I think it, yeah, it, kind of, it has helped me. And now when I write firmware or software, I'm much more often to kind of sketch out what the data is and what needs to happen to it. And I kind of ends up saving me time. There was that great quote about, um, like, uh, I did a thousand hours of writing code to save myself one hour of debugging. No, that's not right. Do you know the one I mean? <laughs> I think I do. Yes. I can't, but that, oh, I, I, mean, I spent a thousand hours debugging to save myself one hour of planning. Okay, yeah. Well, FPGAs ramp that up. I think to even more degree as you say than software. So, I mean, it's, when you talk about algorithms, um, which does seem to be a really popular topic, people have been asking me to do more stuff in algorithms. Uh, definitely, I do stuff in software first, because uh, often these algorithms, like Bressingham's line algorithm, I actually found someone else's implementation in C uh, and its explanation, and I based my Verilog design on that. So I felt I fully understood the algorithm before I, you know, built the uh, the Verilog version. So yeah, often these algorithms aren't that hard once you actually, you know, get your head around them. It's only like 20 lines of C or something. So even if you don't speak that particular language, you can, you know, understand it and experiment with it. And then that actually works quite nicely for building test benches. So with the, um, the FFT display, I was using matplotlib and scipy to generate tones and check the outputs. And then that was what I could then use to test the output of the test benches against the results that I was getting from a different library. And that gives a lot of confidence. If you've implemented it in one way and then you test that against a different implementation, that gives a lot of confidence that the thing is actually working. No, I mean, definitely. I did When I did my TMDS encoder for HDMI output, I wrote a Python TMDS encoder, and then I could compare um, like hundreds or thousands of outputs from the software completely differently implemented to the Verilog. And when they agree, you know, you've got that, you've got much more confidence that, you know, you've, you've got the algorithm right. So, um, yeah, and it doesn't really matter what language, you know, if you like Python or if you like C or if you like, you know, Rust or JavaScript or whatever, but getting the algorithm sort of down in software first is, a, I think, a big important step to do, to like having a chance of implementing it correctly first time as it were on on, on hardware Verilog. yeah or on hardware yeah um okay so uh, this has been a really great conversation thanks very much will um as a final question um as apart from project f and the one bit squared uh, discord community that we've already mentioned do you have any other recommended ways of getting started or resources for people interested um okay well <laughs> it is quite challenging with fpgas but i'd say surprisingly i found twitter to be quite a good resource once you find the people it's not quite the same thing as uh, a community like one bit 
uh, Square Discord, but I've met lots of interesting people and shared projects on Twitter. Um, I'd recommend FPGAs, uh, is it FPGA for fun? Sorry, I'll have to find the... Uh, yeah, that uh, rings a bell. Right. Um, uh, what's it called? Yeah, FPGAforfun.com, which is a really old site that has loads of uh, uh, fun designs on it. Um, yeah, they, I, I'm kind of struggling a bit to find good websites with uh, resources on. Um, what other things are there here? Uh, Nandland is quite good. And uh, Bruno Levy, has his GitHub has lots of good things on it. And Nandland uh, so, has um, a YouTube channel as well. That's worth mentioning. Uh, yes, there, there are some good YouTube channels. Um, it is... It's a bit disappointing how uh, there is a few gems out there, but there isn't a huge mass of content that you might expect um, for such a fascinating and powerful technology, mm -hmm. I'd say. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll ask on the forums. There's good stuff on GitHub. Yeah. And, and actually, is, I'd also like to mention iStudio. So this is um, when I've run uh, FPGA workshops with people before, I have often started with iStudio because it's, um, provide, it's a graphical kind of um, point-and-click environment that allows you to write Verilog if you want to, but you can build up a lot of stuff with a kind of graphical schematic. And one of the nice things it takes care of is um, all the programming and um, the board connection and everything like that with a couple of simple mouse clicks. And as a uh, educator or teacher, if you're planning on running workshops, you can put together the things that you need. So, for so I did like a, a a VGA experimentation workshop for a maker fair, and you could uh, just uh, click and add my um, set of uh, blocks that had their own icons. That was like the VGA generator, and then you could build some logic that set what the color should be at X and Y, and then connect it to the screen and press flash, and it would all happen for you. Um, no, it sounds and, great actually because it's hard to really hard to get that first. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Obi Juan, uh, who's on Twitter as well, has done a lot of tutorials in uh, English and Spanish um, about getting started. So I'd also recommend that. Great. Okay, well, it's been really cool talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. I think this is going to be uh, really interesting for a lot of people. And I would recommend uh, Project F. So what's the URL of Project F? It's Project F dot. Okay, welcome to another interview with the Zero to ASIC course channel. And today I'm joined with Will, who you may know as Will Flux on Twitter. And did I get that right, Will? Yeah, it's, it's Will Flux. It yeah. seems like a nice name. Um, yeah, so could you uh, just give us a little bit of background about yourself? Okay, so, well, like, sort of professionally, I do sort of software, technical architecture, DevOps, cloud, not really relevant to this kind of discussion, uh, but uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine, Ben, uh, sort of uh, pointed me at FPGAs and said, you know, take a look at this. And I, and I got myself, it turned out a very ancient board that did have, you know, not great tools and everything. Uh, but I could almost see immediately these things were amazing. So uh, I was like, got to do more with this stuff. So um, I eventually got myself an RT board, which was a you know a, a decent board with modernish tools uh, the open source tools were a bit uh, well, I didn't really know about them at the time 
Um, and so, yeah, I started trying to get my FPGA boards to do stuff. Um, yeah, so I guess cool. that's, that's how I kind of got into the, the FPGA stuff. But I've always been into like graphics and computer demo scene. Started out on the Amiga as my first computer, really, the first computer I bought. Um, and some of that spirit I've sort of tried to capture in when I've been working on the FPGA. Yeah, so we were just talking about um, the kind of relevance, and I was saying that I saw uh, your tweet about your FPGA project on Twitter and had a look through your site, and I thought it looked like a, a really good resource. And then we were, we were discussing the possibility of doing this interview. And um, for me, the context is that on the Zero to ASIC course, you get, we get some people with digital experience, but a lot of people with nothing. So then I, I like wrote a... Um, Part two, section two of the course is all about digital design. And I'm using the icebreaker board from one bit squared as the kind of, if you can do it all with simulation, but if you want to do it with hardware, then that's the board I recommend. Um, and so, yeah, I was really interested to see your take. And I think that graphics projects are a nice way of um, learning FPGAs and they kind of showcase something that's a bit difficult to do if you're coming from say the Arduino or microcontroller words world, it's quite difficult to get the timings you need. I mean, people have done it, but it's quite difficult to do something um, impressive or particularly real time. Um, so maybe you could tell us about the Project F aim. Okay, yeah, so um, Project F kind of really sort of started about a year ago when I, uh, in fact, thanks to COVID, the work dried up a bit and I had a bit more time. And I'd already written a few blog posts about my FPJ experience and um, after my initial enthusiasm you may have got in the introduction, I kind of hit, I think a lot of people do this kind of uh, barrier that um, even quite simple things, it's really hard to find out how to do them because there are kind of no examples. Um, so, you know, you get your blinky working, that's what, you know, you get a blinky example, LEDs working, now what next? And I bought books and I dug through forums and stuff, but it was really hard to, to do things that, if you're doing stuff on Arduino or Raspberry Pi or whatever, there'd be loads of resources. There were basically no resources, almost. Um, so basically Project F was, I, I'm trying to sort of uh, share my hard-won learnings um, and build some enthusiasm for FPGAs. And because of my sort of background of interesting graphics, and as you say, graphics are hard, very hard to do well on a microcontroller, they seemed ideal. Um, and I'm very much also believing, you know, learning by doing and experimenting and things. And so the graphics quite a nice, fun, interactive way to see see what you're doing and work with even the smallest boards like the like the icebreaker, which I've been porting my designs to. So yeah, cause I, I mean, for people that haven't tried video, it can I don't know. I went for with the first time I did it, I thought this is going to be really difficult, and then basically it's two timers. So at least for VGA, um, so it's actually not that difficult. Yeah, I, I'd use the analogy with CPU design. Like, when, before you've heard about it, you think it's incredibly complicated. Then you get some book and it's like, oh, here you can create a CPU in a few, you know, a, simulate it in software in a few hundred lines of code or in a, a small amount of Verilog, a really simple CPU. And similarly, very simple graphics are very simple. But obviously, as you get into more complex stuff, uh, you know, once people say, oh, what, build a GPU, you know, it's, it's, that's quite a big, quite a big uh, ask. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, graphics, the ba the core stuff is really quite straightforward. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does seem like a great introduction, a way to learn how to use FPGAs practically. 
So um, I'm interested to know how you describe um, what an FPGA is for someone who doesn't, who hasn't used one or doesn't know what they are. How would you, how would you describe it? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the most difficult questions. I mean, I talked to lots of my technical friends about this project when I kind of, when it's kind of getting underway and I couldn't, it's, it's really hard to convey what an FPGA is. I think my best answer is, I've just got it like a, a giant virtual breadboard. So if you're familiar with electronics, you know, you, you're used to having all your individual components and not gates and gates. It's like that, but on a huge sort of virtual scale or maybe more uh, simply like Lego for electronics. So you can, or for digital design. So you can, you know, you've got, you've got your individual components, your, you know, your RAM and your, multipliers and your logic gates and things and the FPGA lets you build those uh, sort of really uh, quickly and simply compared to what you'd have to do if you were building you know it from scratch using individual components you can build at a much larger scale so um, and I guess if you if you want to get really enthusiastic then you say well you can do everything that Apple and Intel and TSMC can do a bit slower and uh, you know you've um, Obviously, you need to learn design skills, but you can build a CPU, you can build a graphics card, you can build a crypto miner, a robot controller, all that stuff. There's, there's nothing your FPGA can't do that, you know, all, all the big boys can do at a bigger scale and faster, but you can do that too. So, um, yeah, if, if you ever felt to be J Miner or Steve Wozniak or whatever, I think this is, this is the kind of modern way to have you, have you go at do, building something new and innovative. Yeah, and um, uh, I like the Lego the Lego metaphor as well. Uh, I often use that one. And then um, now when I'm trying to explain ASICs to people who use FPGAs, I'm like, okay, well, imagine you've got this like single block of Lego that we were using in an FPGA that's like a lookup table or a, a flip-flop. And then you zoom into that and you realize that one Lego brick is made out of 100 other tinier, tinier bricks. And that's like what... Um, building stuff with an ASIC is you've got that finer layerful of detail. So in an FPGA, you use a, you use a lookup table to model an AND gate, and maybe you're, you're wasting resources because you have to build a big one out of lots, and then you can't use some of it, or you only need an inverter and you waste the whole uh, lookup table on one function. But then in an ASIC, you have like 150 smaller tinier lego blocks and one of them is just a single inverter and the other one is like an eight bit eight input and gate so you then you'll get um uh finer grain access to the raw materials and so you get more efficiency and your shapes that you're building out of lego are smoother um but yeah the, the major downside is the six month lead time and <laughs> if you get it wrong then you can't fix it afterwards so mm. fpga is the win um, so, uh, we've already like touched on this, um, but what's your, um, what's your kind of sense about the, a good way of teaching FPGAs? Okay. Well, yeah, well, I'm definitely, as I mentioned for, for the hands-on doing practical stuff. I think most of us, when we learn software programming, lots of people did that, you know, at, you know, school teenagers or whatever. You know, you didn't learn about uh, CPU pipelines or, you know, speculative execution or any of those kind of things. You you built a program to, you know, uh, draw graphics on the screen, make your own little game, do a word quiz or whatever. You did practical hands-on stuff. 
and the kind of theory you'd pick up as you went along. And I very much believe that's the right way to learn FPGAs too. Um, there is most, because most of the material online you find is for, aimed at sort of academic audience for, you know, uh, sort of later years of undergraduates or graduate students. Uh, it tends to be very theoretical and quite dry. Whereas I think the way people get into electronics, Arduino, open source, whatever, is by doing practical things and by learning, by seeing and doing. Uh, and so I, that's why I'm really keen on projects like doing stuff with graphics. Uh, and there's some good example, a few good examples with FPGA for fun, which is another site I'd recommend. We talk about, you know, audio, doing stuff with uh, PCI Express, even they've got lots of practical things. So I think you pick up the theory as you do that. Um, otherwise, I think it's way too off-putting. If, if your first lesson is, here's a blinky LED, now let us explain the difference between a more and a melee, you know, finite state machine. You're like, what? You know, that that's too abstract. You want to learn practically, is my view. Um, but you know, different people learn in different ways. This is my take, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely on the on the practical side of things. When I um, think back about um, ha like the stuff that I remember from previous years or like even kind of uh, formal training, like going to university to study this kind of stuff. The things that I remember most clearly are the things where I actually had to build something or solve a problem where I was fully kind of involved. And that, that hands-on somehow works really well for me. Um, I was looking over a blog post I wrote a while ago about my process when I started on FPGAs kind of three or four years ago. And um, I got, uh, I'll just uh, tick these off. So I said, um, find a mentor, find a, find a community, find the tools. Because at that point, at that point, I was just transitioning from like um, the huge kind of multi gigabyte downloads to the, the, the open source tools, which worked much better for me because I'm like a command line make file Vim kind of person. So I much preferred those. Um, find how other people do it, like look at how other people set things up, start a project. So I did like a video, um, I'd previously done a, an interactive kind of virtual graffiti style project where you use a, a, a spray can, um, and, um, it, uh, uses an infrared camera to track where that is and put it on the VGA screen. But that always took kind of a hundred milliseconds latency with a computer in the loop. So I decided I'm going to do this as an FPGA to try and get that latency down. And I, yeah, I didn't, I thought that was going to be, I thought that was going to be a short project, but it took over a year to complete that. Um, and then do document and pre document and present the project. So then I took it to a maker fair and showed that off, um, study other people's work. So I looked at how, um, Luke Valenti's USB bootloader works for the tiny FPGA. Um, cause that was, and that was like seeing the way he did that and his test benches was really eye opening for me and then start teaching. So I started a, a group at the local Valencia hackerspace, um, to, to start kind of teaching this stuff and stay like one or two steps ahead of the, the people on the course. So it seems to me like with project F you've kind of, well, you, you've got like the, you're doing the split between the RT and the icebreaker, aren't you? So you kind of, you've got the tools there, um, um, yeah, well, yeah. those are two boards that seem popular and I've chosen to support them. But first I tried adding more boards, but uh, especially as my design, I mean, initially I thought my blog post, I'd just write a blog post, move on to the next one. But I keep returning and improving and working on the designs and explanations as I've been learning myself. 
And I found if I tried to support too many combinations, just the testing became, uh, <laughs> it would take me a day just to test with all the combinations of stuff. So um, I, I want to support the open source tools and the um, icebreaker boards, uh, but I also know quite the, the RT board and Xilinx is quite popular as well. And though there is improving uh, the tools for open source and Xilinx are, are getting there. Um, so I, I thought it was good to support both. And it also helps me avoid falling into the trap of using, you know, vendor specific stuff. Um, my designs pretty much work uh, well on both, though I have uh, had to tweak things, um, you know, when I was porting to the icebreaker. Uh, I guess tying in with what you were saying about learning uh, or teaching, I think teaching yourself uh, or uh, trying to teach others is a great way to learn too. I mean, I've, I've learned so much by, you know, posting my ideas and designs and then getting feedback from people. Uh, and I think finding the one bit square Discord channel, which I did about a year ago when I got my icebreaker, that's made a huge difference. Um, yeah, so that's the kind so, of feeds back into this like community idea. Or, yeah, also, and then finding people on there who really know what they're talking about, that's really helpful. Yeah, and, and the prepare, you know, there are people on there who, you know, whose knowledge is so far above mine. It's, you know, we're, we're sort of in different worlds when it comes to digital design, but they've been great in, in helping me. Uh, and I try and help the community, obviously, by publishing examples and, uh, making this stuff accessible because uh, often people are like, well, here's an example. You point you at a Git repository and, you know, here's 50 Verilog files and, a you know, a token readme. And you're like, well, how do I even start? Where do I begin? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage other people, if you're learning to, you know, blog and write about it, uh, people will really appreciate it. Even things you think are basic, like uh, read memh, the, you know, the Verilog uh, loads, stuff into memory has been the most popular post on my blog since I did it, even though you think it's a really simple, trivial thing, but uh, it seems so many people are searching for how to use this seemingly simple thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'd really encourage people to put their, their learning and uh, ideas out there that there is not that much on the internet for FPGAs. For and a, lo and a lot of it is um, pretty old or it's um, only going to work with like some specific vendor tools. So whenever I search for ReadMemH, I always get onto this same like super old school web page that doesn't really help me with what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But I still struggle with that kind of stuff, um, especially mm. um, when I want to read a file from a different directory. It's like every tool kind of needs the 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 the, the the text file that it's reading in in a different directory and you have to i end up having to have symlinks everywhere so it always works yeah it was those kind of problems. i couldn't get the vado i had my file in my project whatever but it turned out it just gave this error there were no internet matches for it and so i put that in my post i think that's partly why i get lots of traffic for just that post because it turns out once you know uh how to do it it's really straightforward and I think this is a really important thing for people to know when they're coming to FPGAs they'll be told you know hardware design's hard you need a different mental you know approach and it's nothing like software and whatever and that is true but lots of the stuff just comes down to digging out the right information which unfortunately is harder than you know I'd like and I think most people would like but uh having the community certainly yeah they be uh getting to know some of the people on one bit square. Yeah. Uh, I would yeah, definitely really echo help. that as a, a great community. I think Esden does a great job of cultivating that community. And 
Um, in particular, I'd like to give a shout out to TNT on that forum because he's so helpful and he's, like you say, his hardware skills are at such a high level. And then he shares on his streams in his YouTube channel um, and gives like great insight for um, for people like me who want to kind of learn the, the next step or what else can you do. And he's always kind of managing to squeeze impossible stuff into an FPGA and kind of, yeah, I think it, it was really um, a live stream of his that properly helped me to understand about how you design f to meet specific timing closure on an FPGA and what, like what's going to be your critical path and how to think about digital design to make sure those critical paths and are, are going to be short or quick. Mm. Yeah. So big up TNT. Yeah. TNT and Gatecat have helped, both helped me enormously, um, in, especially in, with using next PNR and Yosis, uh, to, to get the best out of my, my designs and things. Yeah. Um, I got a little thing on my to-do list here, um, which has maybe falls into one of the things that uh, he didn't understand what I was uh, gonna gonna talk about. But I wanted to say on one of my um, graphics projects, I did a. Um, in fact, I might just go and get it. I even uh, I hope this works. I ch I charged it up uh, for the. Oh, charged it! Oh, it's uh, it's it's a live demo. Oh God. The live demo it never works, does it? <laughs> I charged it up last week when I thought we were having our interview last week, and then I was wrong by a week. And in that week, it's now discharged itself. <laughs> no. Yeah, so well, I can made you charge this... it up while we talk about other things. Oh, what's it? oh, it's a uh, is it a badge? From... Yeah, so it's an icebreaker with a a microphone P mod, um, and then a uh, a screen here. So then, if I uh -huh. um, if I whistle into it, like. And you can see there's like an, an FFT and plots oh, out as a waterfall. And I was finding with um, uh, with every every time I would change the code, uh, the the HDL, the Verilog, and then you and then synthesize it and use NextPNR to um, to put it on the FPGA, the colors would be different. Um, okay. And uh, everything seemed to be fine on the simulation. And I eventually traced it back to needing to register the outputs. So because you get the logic gets laid out wherever. And then when you take like the video output and on the, the LCD clock, it's looking at what's, what the color is, but the, those, um, those colors are coming from different parts of logic or different lookup tables. And they arrive at a slightly different time from all over the design. And then the colors are different and then you do a different layout or use it a different seed with next PNR and then the colors change. Um, but then when I registered the outputs so that like right at the edge of the FPGA, they're all coming in on, uh, getting updated on one clock that totally solved it. But that was, a uh, one of these horrible simulation versus synthesis, um, bugs. And I was wondering, is that something that you've seen in graphic stuff? And like, um, are there any other, uh, sim synth kind of pitfalls that you've run into that uh, you've got any advice on how to uh, resolve? Well, yeah, I, I had uh, a different, if similar experience when I came to Icebreak. So on uh, when I was doing HDMI out, I output on uh, my Xilinx board, because the way you had to do all the encoding and stuff, 
you, you were automatically registering the outputs with it next to the IO pins. When I came to Icebreaker, I had all sorts of weird ghosting problems. In fact, my, image. my colors were right, but my images were sort of ghosting. Uh, and that's in fact where I learned about the SBIO primitive on, on Icebreaker. Uh, and in fact, TNT, who you mentioned earlier, is the one who was like, ah, you're not, you're not doing this explicitly in Ice, uh, and next PNR doesn't say, oh, well, this looks like an output. We'll put it in this register. You need to do it explicitly. So, um, yeah, that, that was really useful. And I updated my blog post to show, you know, that and the trick of using DDR and things to, to get the, the, the best output. But I think uh, there is no, like simulation is never going to do everything you need it to do. Uh, even if you use like, uh, say, Verilator and SDL, which we might talk about in a bit. Um, just those things like registering outputs or dealing with um, timing skew and stuff, it just never seems to be quite the same in simulation. Um, and if you get frustrating bugs, I often found if you just, just adding a, a set of flip-flops, just adding a set of registers, often just fix the <laughs> which isn't ter terribly scientific, but things that work in simulation, you've got, it turns out you've just created this big lot of, you know, mm -hmm. combinational logic. And in simulation that works perfectly. And then you're like, hang on, on the hardware, it's just timing is all over the place. So yeah, um, yeah so the icebreaker exposes more of that when you actually run it. Yeah, so, the tools maybe um, hold your hand a bit less. Um, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine called Diego, who's a real um, expert in this kind of stuff. And he was saying how there's all these kind of rules of thumb that uh, you should use. So all in every time you make a module, um, you should register the outputs so that things all change at the same clock. And if you get used to kind of getting into the habit of doing things along these design guidelines, then you're more likely to end up with... Um, the same thing working on an FPGA as it works in the simulation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with certainly with the registry outputs. I think there's, a, I've, I think I've only got one module where I've explicitly decided not to, and I've documented it, and it's because it's registered immediately in the following, in the logic it links to. But um, yeah, a lot of these rules of thumb are, are definitely worth, uh, <laughs> worth learning. Adopting, from. yeah. Uh, and registers are cheap. I think everyone's kind of scared of spending registers on uh, stuff that, you know, even the icebreaker has thousands and thousands of registers. So One for every lookup uh, table. Don't be a... Sorry? One for every lookup table. Yeah, so don't be afraid. I think people are overly afraid of using uh, registers in, in their designs. Yeah. I, I know where I, in the past I've been um, maybe not generous enough with them, and I've certainly improved performance by adding them. Um, yeah. Yeah break up those combinatorial pathways with another level of registers. Oh, yeah, and especially, like I mentioned the icebreaker before, I think it's not just uh, the difference in tools, say, with some of the commercial products, but also because the FPGA is uh, simpler, let's say some things that you can get away with on the, uh, say, faster FPGAs show up more. So again, TNT, we keep mentioning him, but it was like, oh, you do realize on the icebreaker that subtraction, just using subtraction, uses a whole other layer of logic. That's why this is performing poorly. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even considered that. But uh, because it needs to do the invert and then the the kind of maths, um, which hadn't which hadn't been a problem on the sort of larger FPGAs I've been using. So um, 
it, it improved the performance on the larger FPGAs too, but it was much more critical uh, to get it right. So that is one of the challenges I'd say with video, say on the icebreaker, is that you're more often pushing against the limits of what the board can do, which is great experience, it's gonna be great fun, uh, but you do need to be really mindful of timing more so than on a board with, uh, you know, uh, I guess faster logic. So, Will, what would be your um, suggestion as a good uh, My First Video project? Okay, well, um, I guess it kind of divides into two things you're, you need to consider. Your dry, how to drive the display you're going to use and how you're actually going to draw the graphic. So driving the display depends on, you know, what display you choose to use. Is it a VGA monitor, a, you know, a television or whatever? or even an LCD panel directly. So, but for a first project, I'd suggest either using VGA, because it's really straightforward, or using uh, an output that does the encoding for you. So if you use the DVI-P mod uh, that works well with the icebreaker board, um, then it does all the encoding of DVI for you. So it is that's really straightforward. And it has the advantage of working with televisions and monitors that people have. Um, uh, so yes, and I'd stick to, don't be too ambitious with the resolution at first, like VGA 640 by 480 is, is a good fit, I'd say, for the icebreaker without too much, you know, uh, push, pushing the limits initially. You can, people do do use stuff at HD. Um, and then there's like how you actually uh, draw the graphic. So broadly speaking, you can race the beam in a, like a, you know, in the days of Atari and where you draw the pixels um, like as as the sort of virtual beam passes on the screen, and this this is really high performance and works well with sprites and simple designs. But it does mean timing is a real issue. So you know everything you draw has to be exactly uh, at the right time. But it works even on the tiniest FPGAs and sprites, which are really easy to do. I've got uh, there are plenty of examples of those um, in Project F and on other sites. Uh, make for really good interactive graphics games or whatever. If you want to do something more complicated, then you really need the frame buffer, uh, uh, which is relatively straightforward, but you do need the memory for it. So I think one of the biggest challenges with graphics projects, I don't know, your first example, your first project you used, what you used for memory to Yeah, I ended up using an ex I used the black ice board that has an external SRAM and I used that for the frame buffer. And I think I needed a frame buffer because I was doing persistent lines. Where as you drew with the can, it would those lines would stay on the screen, and it um, you could only have like a five or six lines calculated with Bresenham's line algorithm before you ran out of timing. So you had to like store the results of those lines somewhere. So mm. I ended up going to frame buffer. Yeah. So frame buffer, I'd say, is uh, it unless your project is sort of game or sprite oriented or you can't <laughs> or you really want to push the uh, the sort of metal then i'd go with a frame buffer if you've got the ram um and you can use like the, the pseudo s ram on the icebreaker you can have a you know like a 320 by 240 frame buffer and room for other things yeah so that's um, one of the nice things about the up 5k chip that's on the icebreaker actually is because it has that huge memory compared to the other chips in the same series it's got yeah one megabit yeah of, so you can use um, that for a frame buffer yeah yeah if you so you could use say half for a frame buffer or a half for a double frame buffer and then that's all these memory you could use with a say a pico rb32 
you know, risk five core or whatever. So yes, that is a good option. If say 320 by 180 or 240 works for you. Um, and a frame buffer does give you so much more flexibility. Um, as you said, like if you're drawing lines, drawing diagrams, visualizing or processing video, whatever. Uh, it's just a shame more boards don't have more generous, easy to use memory because DRAM is really hard to use. So I assume similarly with a, the, if people are doing ASIC projects, then you are unlikely to have significant memory on your ASIC. You're going to have to depend on external uh, memory. So you kind of need to look at what mode you, you know, display with resolution and bandwidth you need and how you're going to drive it. But you probably don't want to have to build a DRAM controller into your ASIC or else, you know, that that's going to make your life yeah, hard. No, but, SRAM is uh, much easier. And I, I've made this point before, I'd really like to see more boards include, you know, a four megabit SRAM or whatever. They're only a couple of dollars. And or it's even so just a footprint, easier. you know, you can add them. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for graphics, uh, a frame buffer really does make exploring and doing interesting things easier. And also dealing with timing, you talked about the challenge with drawing lines. Well, of course, the frame buffer, if you use um, like BRAM, if you've got dual port BRAM, which even the icebreaker can manage, you know, you can write at one clock and read at another clock, then you can draw at a different frequency from, you know, your your display is operating. So that's really helpful if you're struggling to meet timing. If you're doing something complex, some complex graphics that will work at 12 megahertz, but your display needs 25 megahertz, well, that's fine if you use a frame buffer and use that approach. Um, so, yeah, fra frame buffers are great. Just yeah, if, if you're expecting to get, you know, 19, 20, 1080 PhD, then uh, you're going to need a lot of memory and a lot, uh, a lot of boards to, to do that. So, uh, yeah, I think um, so much to, yeah, because I saw on your the ASIC project you talked about recently, the challenge of the amount of memory and handling, you know, sort of sprites and things. So. Yeah, I think there's... Um... Uh, two or three of the group submissions coming in for MPW2 are uh, frame bufferless video displays, kind of uh, retro gaming inspired, racing the beam. And for that very reason, with just a very small amount of memory internally to uh, record where sprites are or what the sprite tiles are. Um, but then everything is rendered on the fly at the speed you need. Yeah. Um. Um, so, um, I wanted to ask you what your preferred method is for doing simulation and testing, because one of the problems that I've had, um, like, so just going back to you felt like earlier, you said, you don't, it's annoying to support more boards. And one reason is because then it takes too long to do the testing. Um, so wouldn't it be cool if you could, um, kind of have like all your test benches and then just run them in a continuous integration environment or something like that. Um, but my experience is that often it can take hours to render a single frame to then say generate a PNG and then diff that against your golden reference output or whatever. So uh, do you have any hints or tips for, I mean, the, the, the fun thing is, yeah, you just bang it on an FPGA and look at what comes on the video screen. That's kind of one of the reasons why th th this makes a nice, a nice project. But if you do want to do um, simulation with video projects, what would you, how would you go about doing it? 
Okay, well, yeah, it is really tempting. I, I'm sure we've all done this. We just plug in the FPGA and occasionally it works on the screen first time. And a lot of the time though, you'll get a totally garbled screen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you need a, like a multi-pronged attack to, to test and simulate your uh, video projects. Um, so what, like, because I, the first tool I used seriously was Vivado, I've tended to do my initial behavioral simulation in that. Um, just because that was what I sort of started off doing. Uh, and so I, I, my designs were to break them down into a smaller modules as is reasonable and then test those individually because uh, it's really easy to write a test bench for a, you know, a, a, a simple module, even say drawing a line or whatever. Um, but as you said, I mean, behavioral simulation only gets you so far, uh, especially with things like graphics and video. It's really hard to see if, the video signal will actually work on a television or a, a monitor. So uh, I've been making increasing use of Verilator and SDL combined. So um, Verilator is so much faster than lots of the, the behavioral simulation tools, but it is actually practical to do video stuff on it. Um, so I'm still working to up the performance a bit, but for some of the examples in FPGA graphics, I'm getting around one frame a second or three frames a second, which is actually usable compared to, you know, as you said, like waiting. I've certainly done stuff in the past where I'm like, oh, it's not working. Oh, it, oh no, it's drawn one pixel, drawn another pixel. And that's just far too slow um, to be useful. So I think with the graphics, there is that huge jump from here's something I can look in a waveform to here's a million pixels being changed by something and just the volume of data makes sort of simple behavioral stuff harder to do you can do it for the like building block but ultimately you want to see does it work on a tv or monitor and i think uh very later in fdl is the best thing i found so far so um just say that. i didn't i'm not quite hearing the acronym you're saying f fdl sorry fdl the simple f uh direct hang on this might be something <laughs> i have to check the what the acronym but it's a uh what's it called uh so s it's Sierra Delta Lima. Okay. It's SDL. a well-known. Uh, where is it? Hang on. Uh, yeah, simple direct media layer. So SDL is a, a, a cross-platform library. It's a very thin layer on top of whatever OS you're using, which means you can, in a like a hundred lines of C plus plus or whatever get an image and draw on a screen. So what you can do, because Verilator, maybe I should explain this properly then. So Verilator can take your Verilog and turn it into C++. Uh, so for the graphics thing, say, With limitations. Can, sorry? <laughs> With some limitations. With this, yeah. yeah, well I try and do as little as possible yeah, yeah, in C++. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so you, you get an interface you can use in C++ and then SDL provides a simple interface to do graphics things like you can say, well, here's an array of color values, draw them in this window. And you only need like, you know, 10, 20 lines of C++ to do that. So by combining them together. So it's a bit like can, a very simple um, QT or Cairo or something like that. that allows you. Yeah, it's less about UI and more just like, I mean, it does do audio and game controllers and stuff. It's been used for lots of games, but it does give you basically a canvas you can draw on very simply. Um, 
sorry to interrupt you there. So, and it's also cross-platform, so you can run it on Windows and Linux and Mac OS or whatever. Uh, so uh, I, I plan to write a post about this because I think it is really a uh, really useful approach. Um, and even if you don't really know C++ or whatever, you can just cut and paste the example, but it does give you that quick visualization uh, of you know what's going on. And you can save the things to PNGs or whatever if you compare it. So I'd be really interested if other people have ideas on um, testing graphical projects, but I think Ver Verilator and SDL uh, is the fastest thing I, I like yeah. I've found so far. But I wouldn't I would emphasize do the behavioral tests, break break your design down and do the tests of individual things. Um like if you're using the breasting line algorithm, for example, I verified that um behaviorally first before I even tried drawing on a with its own you know, distinct screen. test bench. Yeah, so it's just I mean it, it's not formally verified or anything. Um, but it is, you know, I, I tried to think of all the educators and things we've found some more. Um, like formal verification is something I'd like to learn more about, but um, it's just one of those things that's kind of still been on the on the backlog, but I haven't got to, and it's quite hard to do for some of these more complex uh, things. Yeah. Even proving like multiplication or division is quite hard. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... Yeah, let's not go on. Let's not uh, stray too far off the path here. But um, uh, yeah, I think one of the things I think is misunderstood about formal is that um, it's uh, very difficult to get a return on investment. And I think you can get you can cover some bases really quickly and easily to just kind of give yourself some security that this thing will never happen, or like the state machine can never get into this state, or and that just. If you're finding yourself trying to work out like what would happen with these combination of signals is it ever possible for this to happen and you can just write a single assertion saying this will never happen and then run that through the tools and find out whether it can or not um yeah i, I mean i'd love to do more it's it's definitely something i'd like to do more of i haven't been put off by my little experience of it it's just that you know there are so, there's so many things to do uh, yeah. and, and test that well when you get round to it ask me for an evaluation license yosis hq <laughs> Ah, you see, well, one of the things that's been I found slightly confusing, maybe again, this is off topic for this video, is understanding how these the various tools in this area fit together and what how the commercial and open source ones relate to each other. So we've got a new page on the Yosis HQ website that explains that. Anyway, ah, back back brilliant. onto the, back onto the topic. I wanted to just share my um, my tip for um, for debugging graphic stuff. So I. Um, I also have used Verilator. I don't, I'm not really a C++ person. I got a nice pull request from Daya Datsp on my VGA clock that lets me run the clock in real time and adjust the hours and the minutes uh, with buttons and save PNGs, which is great. But what I also like to do is um, make the VGA output and the rest of the design as parametric as possible. So I may be targeting 640 by 480, but I can squeeze it down to like, 40 by 20 and then I can render a frame in much much less time and then I can check that frame against what I'm expecting so um yeah verilator and parametric stuff um okay so moving on uh, one of the other things I liked about project f when I was browsing through it was uh, you've got some nice pages on algorithms or shortcuts or like how to achieve a, a specific thing 
And I was wondering if you could just um, tell us what your favourite, um, your, what your favourite post has been so far about uh, one of these algorithms or shortcuts. So, algorithms? You mean like division or? Probably? Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's one actually because um, I was I was when I first started doing HDL stuff like really at the beginning and I needed to do a division, I just put like a divide sign in there. And then suddenly my design went from kind of passing timing with a hundred lookup tables to failing timing with 5,000 lookup tables. And I was like, what is going on here? Cause I didn't realize that the tools were going to synthesize me a single cycle divide. <laughs> and often, um, so a, a, a great tip here, just before um, I let you jump in, is that I got shown by Claire Wolf is uh, you can take your divide, put it in C, compile it, disassemble it to see what the instructions are. And GCC is really great. Well, all compilers are great at optimization. So then you may find that if you do like left shift by two, subtract some number and then right shift, then you get the integer argument that you want. And then that's much, much quicker to get out with an FPGA. Um, so yeah, just handing it back over to you. Uh, maybe okay. you can talk about one of your favorite um, optimizations or uh, algorithms that you use in FPGAs. Okay, well, I, I'd, I'd like to talk about division because um, my approach is really simple, but I think is it is like very illustrative of many hardware points or hardware design challenges and trade-offs with division. So. Uh, like you, when I first came to do division, I was like, oh, well, right, we can do multiplication, but division, in fact, in the tools I was using, wasn't synthesizable. And so I obviously looked on the net and there were people saying, well, you fools, we shouldn't expect division to be synthesizable. But they didn't really provide any answers to like why or um, how you should go about it. Because I mean, multiplication is pretty complex as well, but seemingly my FPGA could do that. Um, and the modules and stuff available weren't great. So in the end, I was like, well, how does division work? I went back to like school, as it were, uh, reminded myself how long division works. And I was like, well, if I can do long division, surely it can be done in binary. And it turned out to be straightforward. So basically I designed from scratch an algorithm that turned out to be the non-restoring, uh, I had to look that up there, division uh, algorithm. And it's really straightforward. It only does one bit per cycle. So a 32-bit device takes 32 cycles, but it's incredibly simple. I mean, it, the most complex operation it does is a subtract. Uh, so it doesn't use any complex multipliers or DSPs or whatever. Um, and at first I was kind of a bit, you know, unimpressed or disappointed with this. I wanted, you know, faster. You say single cycle division or whatever. Uh, so I did some research uh, and there's all these academic papers about doing fast divide, but it's it's really hard and it uses multipliers and lookup tables and it's incredibly complex. And so because obviously on an FPGA, I'm not stuck with just having one divider. In fact, for those graphics stuff and things I've done, I've just, um, you know, I can create 32 dividers and then on average, I'm getting, you know, one, I'm getting, you know, I'm, the latency is still 32 cycles, but I'm getting, you know, 32 results every cycle. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, I think, I think the natural inclination is to want to do things as few cycles as possible, but because you can do so much in parallel, you shouldn't feel, um, restricted to that. So, um, and, and as you, you talked about using GCC as an example to get a sense of, uh, like how complex something is. Uh, I'd say another example is to look at what 
commercial hardware if there are figures for it. And so uh, I looked at my Skylake, you know, my Intel Skylake CPU, quad core, a few years old or whatever, and how long does 64-bit integer division take? Well, it takes 42 to 95 cycles. So my trivial algorithm runs a lot slower than a 4 gigahertz Pentium, not Pentium, you know, whatever, uh, Skylake um, Core i7 or whatever it is. Uh, but I'm still getting one cycle. So I, I think there is a tendency for people to feel they've got to do stuff in as few cycles as possible. And keeping each cycle really simple, you get good clock speed and it's much easier to debug. So um, there are, it feels like there are bigger trade-offs in complexity on hardware than there are in software. Um, a more complicated algorithm in software, if it takes a bit more memory or whatever, you don't suffer that much of a penalty for that. But if your division logic is 10 times larger, that can be a big penalty on an FPGA or an ASIC. So, yeah, and it may be yeah. for nothing. So if you're like... Hmm. If your target is a handheld computer game and you want fast latency, say it's got to be like a hundredth of a second, which is going to be impossible to to feel. But in terms of if your thing is running at 10 megahertz and you've got to update a multiplier every hundredth of a second, then you've got tens of thousands of cycles to do that. And as you say, with an FPGA, if you need to do more than one thing at once you just duplicate that simple division hardware and do stuff in parallel and i i really think that that's a key thing about making that next step um beyond kind of the blinky hello world fpga stuff is thinking about how quickly do i really need the result and how many clock cycles is that and how can i pipeline stuff so that um i get my result in time but using the shortest smallest simplest possible units that are easy to test synthesize well and have very low latency and yes the simpler the design it is much easier to test and verify when you mentioned division i obviously thought of the pentium fdiv bug uh, which i also looked up when i was learning about division and that was due to a mis they used a lookup table uh, to speed part of the division. And when the chip was made, four values, I think it is in the table, were accidentally set to zero rather than like minus two or something. And that's what caused that bug. So if, if that can happen to Intel with their, I'm sure, very rigorous testing, if you build a very complicated divider, like how are you going to test it? So I'd say def starting simple that you can verify. If you do need to make it faster, you can you know, work on the optimization. But I'd really push back against people trying to do really complex clever designs right from the get-go um for something like division so yeah um, and simple, simple stuff how is... simply... go on sorry no it was pleasing to see that just taking pen and paper as it were and saying how do we do division uh, this is you know th this is how you do it can you know work work wonders for that yeah yeah that's an interesting point actually pen and paper is um I have this bad habit when I'm programming to just think, oh, I can just work this out as I do it. And then I always tie myself up in knots because I've not properly thought about what I actually have to do. But I quickly learned with FPGA stuff, there's no way I'm going to be able to solve this on the fly. And I really need to break it down into these small blocks. And then by using pen and paper and looking at it and looking at these little blocks, um, I think it, yeah, it kind of, it has helped me. And now when I, 
write firmware or software, I'm much more often to kind of sketch out what the data is and what needs to happen to it. And that kind of ends up saving me time. There was that great quote about, um, like, uh, I did a thousand hours of writing code to save myself one hour of debugging. No, that's not right. Do you know the one I mean? <laughs> I think I do, yes. I can't. That, that, oh, I, I spent a thousand hours debugging to save myself one hour of planning. Okay, yeah. Well, FPGAs ramp that up, I think, to even more degree, as you say, than software. So, I mean, it's, when you talk about algorithms, um, which does seem to be a really popular topic. People have been asking me to do more stuff in algorithms. Uh, definitely, I do stuff in software first, because uh, often these algorithms, like Bressingham's line algorithm, I actually found someone else's implementation in C uh, and its explanation, and I based my Verilog design on that. So I felt I fully understood the algorithm before I, you know, built the uh, the Verilog version. So yeah, and often these algorithms aren't that hard once you actually, you know, get your head around them. It's only like 20 lines of C or something. So even if you don't speak that particular language, you can, you know, understand it and experiment with it. And then that actually works quite nicely for building test benches. So with the, um, the FFT display, I was using matplotlib and scipy to generate tones and check the outputs. And then that was what I could then use to test the output of the test benches against the results that I was getting from a different library. And that gives a lot of, if you've implemented it in one way and then you test that against a different implementation, that gives a lot of confidence that the thing is actually working. No, I mean, definitely. I did, when I did my TMDS encoder for HDMI output, I wrote a Python TMDS encoder and then I could compare um, like hundreds or thousands of outputs from the software completely differently implemented to the Verilog. And when they agree, you know, you've got that, you've got much more confidence that, you know, you've, you've got the algorithm right. So, um, yeah, and it doesn't really matter what language, you know, if you like Python or if you like C or if you like, you know, Rust or JavaScript or whatever, but getting the algorithm sort of down in software first is, a, I think, a big important step to do, to like having a chance of implementing it correctly first time as it were on on, on, on hardware Verilog. yeah or on hardware yeah um okay so uh, this has been a really great conversation thanks very much will um as a final question um as apart from project f and the one bit squared uh, discord community that we've already mentioned do you have any other recommended ways of getting started or resources for people interested um, okay, well, <laughs> it is quite challenging with FPGAs, but I'd say, surprisingly, I found Twitter to be quite a good resource. Once you find the people, it's not quite the same thing as uh, a community like One Bit uh, Squared Discord, but I've met lots of interesting people and shared projects on Twitter. Um, I'd recommend FPGAs, uh, FPGAs for fun. Sorry, I'll have to find the... Uh, yeah, that rings a bell. Right. Um, uh, what's it called? Yeah, fpgaforfun.com, which is a really old site that has loads of uh, uh, fun designs on it. Um, yeah, they, I, I'm kind of struggling a bit to find good websites with uh, divorces on. Um, what other things are there here? Uh, Nandland is quite good. And uh, Bruno Levy, has his GitHub has lots of good things on it. And Nandland uh, so, has um, a YouTube channel as well, that's worth mentioning. 
Uh, yes, there, there are some good YouTube channels. Um, it is it is a bit disappointing how uh, there is a few gems out there, but there isn't a huge mass of content that you might expect um, for such a fascinating and powerful technology, mm -hmm. I'd say. Um, but yeah, our, our ask on the forums, there's good stuff on GitHub yeah. and... And actually, is, I'd also like to mention iStudio. So this is um, when I've run uh, FPGA workshops with people before, I have often started with iStudio because it's, um, it's a graphical kind of um, point and click environment that allows you to write Verilog if you want to, but you can build up a lot of stuff with a kind of graphical schematic. And one of the nice things it takes care of is um, all the programming and um, the board connection and everything like that with a couple of simple mouse clicks. And as a uh, educator or teacher, if you're planning on running workshops, you can put together the things that you need. So for so I did like a, a, a VGA experimentation workshop for a maker fair, and you could uh, just uh, click and add my um, set of uh, blocks that had their own icons that was like the VGA generator. And then you could build some logic that set what the color should be at X and Y and then connect it to the screen and press flash and it would all happen for you. Um, no, it sounds and, great actually because it's hard to really hard to get that first mm -hmm, toolchain and yeah. set. And Obi Juan, uh, who's on Twitter as well, has done a lot of tutorials in uh, English and Spanish um, about getting started. So I'd also recommend that. Great. Okay, well, it's been really cool talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. I think this is going to be uh, really interesting for a lot of people. And I would recommend uh, Project F. So what's the URL of Project F? It's projectf.io. Uh, and there's also, you can find it on GitHub. So all all the designs are MIT licensed. So as open as they possibly can be. So yeah, go and learn and build get involved. stuff. And Do some graphics. Involved, yeah. yeah, cool. Okay, thanks again. And um, thanks. see you online. Thank you.